Welcome to the Independent Advisors Podcast, where we dive into the world of stocks, tradable markets, and financial planning with Jessup Wealth Management's Chief Investment Officer, Mark McEvely, and CEO, Matt Jessup. You'll hear tips, tricks, and strategies to address your financial well-being, and most importantly, conveyed in a way that everyone can understand. Here are your hosts, Mark and Matt. Hey everyone, welcome to episode 220 of the Independent Advisors Podcast, where Matt Jessup and I, Mark McEvely, bring you everything you need to know from the past week in the world of financial markets and financial planning. This week, uh, Nick is back on the podcast for the second week in a row, sitting in for Matt. So welcome back, uh, Nicholas. It's good to have you again. Always good to be here. Excited to get into it. As always, we will review the month-to-date and year-to-date performance for the major market indices that we track. This data is from YCharts and is uh, as of September 27th. S&P 500 index is down 5.2% for the month, but still up 11.3% for the year. The Dow Jones Industrial Average down 3.4% for the month, up 1.2% for the year. The NASDAQ Composite Index down 6.7% for the month and up 25% for the year. The Russell 2000 Small Cap Index down 6.7% for the month and barely clinging on to a 0.9% return for the year. And the Vanguard All World X United States ETF down 4.3% for the month and up 3% for the year. Three months treasury rate at 5.58%, the two-year treasury rate 5.1%, and the 10-year treasury rate at 4.61%. Moving on to big headlines and current events, Nick. I think the biggie that everyone's talking about right now is the looming government shutdown. Um, So we're kind of on the verge of a partial shutdown here if a deal is not reached. you know, on several spending bills actually by the end of September. Um, And I'll have a little bit more information for people here in a little bit about, you know, what a government shutdown is, the implications it has, what's the average return uh, in the market during a government shutdown, how long do they usually last? Um, It usually sounds more scary than uh, it is because it's usually pretty quickly that these things get resolved. Um, But that's a very possible uh, outcome here in a few days. Uh, yeah, the only that's, that's uh, I, I'm almost getting numb, numb to the government shutdowns. Seems yeah, like it's, ever since it's, I started in the markets, like this, this happens all the time. Quite so. often, yeah, it's it's pretty yeah. common. So, um, yeah. the only th- other thing I wanted to bring up, Nick, is obviously you know we've been hammering this point home with our podcast listeners. Uh, and our clients this month, but September uh, tends to be the weakest month out of the year. Obviously, we've seen that play out with the S&P 500 down more than 5% just on the month alone. Um, however, uh, just wanted to share some stats on pre-election year October since 1950. And this was from uh, the Stock Traders Almanac. Uh, Jenna will throw this up on the YouTube video uh, for those that are watching. Um October tends to be pretty flat, actually, Nick. So going back to 1950, uh, the Dow Jones Industrial Average is down 0.4% on average. S&P is up 0.2% on average. The NASDAQ's up 0.3% on average. So uh, usually in non-pre-election years, October tends to be a little bit stronger than this. Um, 
and you know obviously as we get through october we'll talk about november and december but just as a little preview for people regardless if it's a pre-election year or just a normal year um you know november and december tend to be abnormally strong months so uh, again wouldn't surprise me if we don't get a a quick sharp violent move to the upside it might take some time you might chop sideways for a little bit after we get into to october so i just don't want that to to surprise anybody yep makes sense data is pretty clear on that one um, moving on to tweets, articles, and research from this week. Uh, again, the first thing I had, Nick, is a blog post from Ryan Dietrich on September 26th titled 10 Things to Know About a Government Shutdown. And I just picked a couple of things that I wanted to talk about. So uh, Jenna will have the link to the article in our show notes for anyone that wants to read that in its entirety. Ryan says the bottom line is that the government can only spend on what is deemed essential services like law enforcement and safety. The largest impact will be on hundreds of thousands of federal employees not receiving their regular paychecks. It will take a bipartisan deal to avoid a shutdown or to reopen the government. Should we have a full government shutdown, which was the last time was in 2013, so about a decade ago, then all 1.9 million federal employees who don't work on mandatory programs like Medicare and Social Security will be furloughed and sent home, not getting a check until things open back up. Essential employees will be forced to come to work, think TSA and air traffic controllers, but they also won't be paid until things are back up and running. Now, I don't know about you, Nick, but that doesn't sound very good to me. I don't know anyone that likes to work for free unless obviously you're retired or not working and you're volunteering, but it doesn't sound very good. So even people, I have a sneaky suspicion if they're quote unquote required to come to work, doesn't mean they're necessarily going to if they're not going to get paid. And, uh, you know, I think you're going to be able to see that when you're traveling, right? I think there's going yeah. to be travel delays and it's going to take longer to get through security. And we've seen that happen before, right? Yeah. It's also like you're not incentivized to work hard if uh, you're a TSA agent and you are that's showing up and you know you're you're uh, you're not getting paid. That's yeah. So not yeah. not incentivized to work harder. So yeah, definitely. No, it's not not a good thing for delays, for, yeah. for anybody. Uh, continuing on, other areas impacted, some government economic data will be delayed, so things like the monthly jobs data won't happen. We saw delayed government data in the last shutdown in 2018-2019, which was a partial shutdown. And given the Federal Reserve Bank is data dependent, this could cause more headaches the longer the shutdown goes. So obviously, Nick, we've talked about how much the jobs data is important to the Fed when they're talking about inflation and where interest rates should be. Um, so that delay delayment of data would uh, obviously pose a little bit of a problem for the Fed. But like Ryan said, it really isn't that big of an issue because the shutdowns don't last that long. Yeah. And the, and the reason uh, that delay with the data occurs is because that data comes from the Bureau of Labor Statistics, which is a federal agency that keeps track of that data um, for Correct. people who are for people who are wondering. Correct. Uh, national parks uh, and museums will also be shut down. It was estimated that the full shutdown in 2013 led to a loss of $500 million in spending at national parks, which is kind of crazy. 
the 2019 shutdown saw delays at airports as air traffic controllers weren't crazy, like we talked about, about showing up to work and not getting paid. Most shutdowns didn't last very long. It was a median of five days, and fortunately, stocks weren't over-impacted either, uh, with an average return of a positive 0.3% during the shutdown. The truth is the market knows this will be resolved and tends to look forward past the scary headlines. Also, don't forget the previous shutdown was a record 35 days, yet stocks gained more than 10% during that shutdown. So there's a chart here that Jenna will put up on uh, the YouTube video for us here, and it shows government shutdowns, uh, the length in terms of days of the shutdown, and then the S&P 500 return during the shutdown and 12 months after the shutdown ends. And the average government shutdown lasts about 9.1 days. Average return for the S&P during that time period is about 0.3%. And then uh, 12 months later, after the shutdown, the average uh, return is almost 13%. So uh, again, I think it's it gets a lot of hype up in the media. It's like, oh, the government's shutting down. How is this going to impact your portfolio? How is this going to impact the economy? Um, and I'm not saying this time it can't be a three-month shutdown, but that just hasn't happened yet. So uh, I wouldn't be too concerned about this just yet. The the other thing that this chart doesn't show is how often the the government shutdown talk appears in the media or that we talk about a government shutdown and then they obviously pass the bills needed prior to the government actually shutting down. That happens a ton as well, which this data doesn't cover. Right. Um, and it's a lose-lose for both parties, in my opinion. You it know, is. They have constituents yeah. that are federal employees, both Republicans yeah. and Democrats and independents, and it's like... No one wants to work and not get paid. No one wants to get furloughed. So it's like eventually they come to a deal, but a lot of the times they just hold out to the last minute to see what they can squeak out from the other side. Yeah, exactly. And it's a, it's a, a terrible uh, situation of uh, unfortunate environment of politics uh, because obviously, like you said, 1.9 million people, you know, going a without a paycheck. It's a lot of people, a lot of people who have to, deal with with that temporary pain and everything you went through it, it it's pretty obvious that the longer that goes on the more people are upset with the system uh, both parties all of that so they're similarly incentivized not to hold out too long and to try to get it uh, get it across which is why we've only had one last for a little over a month i guess Right. And it's just it's frustrating for, you know, for taxpayers to see that, too, because like we said, there was, it was an estimated uh, loss of five hundred million dollars in spending at national parks in the 2013 yep. shutdown. That's half a billion dollars, Nick. Mm -hmm. And, you know, when politicians want to raise taxes on taxpayers, it's like you guys left a half a billion dollars on the on, table. On the table. Yeah. And, you know, I know that, you know, that goes to you know, pay employees and stuff. But still, that's a big number just to leave on the table because two parties couldn't come to an agreement. Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, next thing I had, Nick, transitioning away from the shutdown talk was a tweet from Caleb Franzen on September 26th. And he tweeted uh, XLE versus QQQ. And for those that don't know, XLE is the ticker symbol for 
the energy sector ETF here in the US and QQQ is the NASDAQ 100 uh, ETF. And it shows uh, energy versus the NASDAQ 100 on a relative basis. And he says, this is probably the most important chart in the stock market right now. It's breaking out. What does that tell you? And Nick, I thought that this was really interesting because we're starting to see energy outperform tech stocks right now, which in the past decade really hasn't happened just up until the last year or two, I would say. Mm -hmm. And I think the big question that I have and that I think everyone else has is, is this a sign that inflation is going to reignite and the worst isn't behind us? Or is this just simple sector rotation to continue to fuel the bull market? Because I think it's pretty obvious to most people that energy is the largest component of the inflation calculation, right? Mm -hmm. And energy prices have been rising. Thus, energy stocks have been doing relatively well. Um, so I think people might be a little nervous that inflation is not quite over just yet. Um, but this could be, in my opinion, a nothing burger. And it's just like, OK, you know, we always talk about how sector rotation is the lifeblood of, of bull markets and you can't have the same sectors leading all the time. It's not a healthy environment. Um, so do I know which one it is? No, I don't. Absolutely not. But I do know either way we'll be prepared and prepared to adjust client portfolios as necessary. Um, but I thought this was just really interesting because this would be a major shift in the market narrative if energy does go on to outperform for a long period of time. Yeah, it's a it's a great chart. I uh, another item I'd throw out there for listeners to consider and to think about in this conversation would be the historical makeup of energy within the S&P 500 and how that industry has changed, particularly in the last, let's call it five years. Um, as far as the energy sector, generally speaking, getting more capital efficient and having more discipline around uh, distributions to shareholders and cleaner balance sheets and not having as much risky spending in the space. That has been a big theme over the past five years. And prior to that, the energy space, you know, part of it was obviously the oil prices being lower, but the other part of it was um, just too much spending and the balance sheets weren't that clean. And we've seen that change a lot in the past few years. And energy specialists that I talked to five years ago, you know, they would they would talk about how crazy it was that energy was 3% of the S&P 500. They would say that. I, that's absolutely crazy. I mean, it used to be like 10%, you know, 10 years mm -hmm. prior. Um, and so I think that could be a, a factor here as well, where, where you see uh, a little bit a little bit of that sector rotation because these companies look a little different than they did five years ago. They're, they're um, more disciplined. They're more capital efficient. Um, they, they just look like different companies than they did, um, you know, back when oil was in the, you know, 50s and, and low 60s, um, you know, they really had to, to, to shape up. And then you take that combined with, with the uh, increase in the oil price and, you know, obviously they're going to make even more money. So I think that's, that's a little bit of it as well, where big, big money on, on the street is 
getting a little bit more comfortable with increasing those portfolio values, um, as we saw, you know, with the with the run up in oil and the run up in energy stocks last year. So I, I do think that narrative from the past five years kind of has a place somewhere in that in that conversation. So just food for thought. Yeah, just I, you know, as you were talking, I just pulled up how much energy uh, the energy sector makes up of the S and P five hundred. Nick, and what's your what's your guess of what energy is worth in the S and P five hundred in terms of percentage wise? I'm trying to think after the the jump in twenty two, maybe like four percent. Yeah, four point seven percent. Four point seven. Okay, that's more um, than I thought. You know, which it was, was it, it was it, three like, for a long time. Yeah, it was. I think it was even sub three for a long time, and like two point seven. Yeah. yeah, so it's like almost doubled, um, yep. just over the past year or year and a half. So, and there's a lot of talk right now, Nick, about you know how big the tech sector is as a percentage of the S and P 500, and it's the largest it's ever been, and we have seven individual stocks that are the largest percentage of the S&P 500 in history. So, mm-hmm. you know, again, it's funny how all these things work where it's almost like a perfect storm of things coming together that's yeah. like, oh, you know, maybe we shouldn't be so surprised if energy does pretty well over the next couple of years. Mm-hmm. Yeah, what's tech right now? Like 20 27% or something like that? Twenty. Yeah, let's see. Tech now, yeah, 27.86%. Okay. Yeah. Yep. And so, that's and some, that's been some pretty could consistent. Argue, right. Over the past and some few could, years. Some could argue communication services. There's a lot of techie names in there too, and that's at eight point nine percent. So you know. Yeah, we're we're splitting 35, hairs. Five thirty six percent. A few. Yeah. yeah. So, anyways, interesting. <laughs> uh, the last thing I had, Nick, was a tweet from Kelly Cox, who we reference uh, quite often on this podcast. This was from September twenty first. Uh, she tweeted, if the S&P 500 closes at these levels, which it did, and it's closed below that as we fast forward to September 28th, it will be a 5% sell-off. We've seen this about uh, two times per year since 1950. This is normal. Um, so again, just wanted to hammer the point home that typically we do have a couple of 5% plus sell-offs during the year, and this is very normal, and we hadn't until we got to this point in the year. So uh, again, in my opinion, it's not freak-out time. Uh, it is just, hey, this is how markets works. This is normal. Uh, and you know, hopefully seasonality uh, kicks into gear here in a couple months, and November and December are, are quite strong. Yep, I uh, completely agree with that. Um, the first, the first piece of research I have is from Lisa Abramowitz over at Bloomberg. Uh, love, love the stuff that Lisa puts out. Um, and it's a, it's a little lengthy here, so I'm going to try to read a little quicker. Uh, yields on the 10 year treasuries closed at new post 2007 highs today. Uh, this was released yesterday, by the way. Uh, treasury, uh, 10 year treasuries closed at a new post 07 high today driven by real yields, which closed out at post-09 uh, highs. Oil closed at the highest levels in more than a year, and the euro is poised to break through the 105 versus the dollar. There's talk of risk parity funds unwinding or some other massive selling, but the moves represent a growing fear. If the Fed is taking a victory lap about achieving a soft landing, many are losing faith that the Fed is willing to compromise growth 
to bring inflation down to 2%. Mizuho's Steve Ricciuto, might have pronounced that wrong, sorry, Steve. Mizuho's Steve rejected the idea of a term premium this morning on Bloomberg surveillance and instead called it the inflation premium. He said he thinks rising real yields reflect a growing skepticism that the Fed means what it says about fighting inflation. That kind of ties into what you were talking about earlier is, you know, if inflation is going to pop back up with energy prices kind of um, going higher, and if the Fed's not willing to to fight inflation, uh, what does that what does that mean for the markets? I I personally am, am kind of on the other side of that of that coin. I do think the Fed will come back out and fight inflation. Um, I don't really know why there's growing skepticism that the Fed won't. Personally, I think just when you look at the history of the Fed, the, they they tend not to not to be satisfied until they see their two percent, and we're not there yet. So. Um, I don't, I don't know what you, what you think about it. Yeah, no, I just, I think the only comment that, that I'll throw out there is, um, you know, I think everyone's so concerned about, again, why, why are things happening? What is driving the 10 year yield? Why is the fed doing what they're doing? And in my opinion, I'm like, sometimes, and especially in this conversation, to me, it's kind of just a waste of time. It's like, it is what it is that the 10-year treasury yield closed at new highs not seen since 2007, right? And what does that usually mean when yields are higher? Usually means that uh, inflation is higher, usually means that energy is doing well, energy stocks that is, and it usually means that oil is on the rise, right? So, um, you know, that's what that means for, for people like us. And there could be a gazillion different reasons of what goes into driving that higher. But, uh, you know, right now yields are going higher and bond prices are going lower. And I think for us, that's all we need to know. Yep. Yeah, absolutely. Um, uh, the second piece I have is a, is a quick one, um, a tweet also from yesterday uh, from Liz Ann Saunders. Um, and it's about growth in the global equity market over the past 20 years. Pretty cool chart. Um, the tweet says the following global equity markets have nearly tripled in size since 2003 to 109 trillion in total market capitalization over the past several decades, growth in money supply and ultra low interest rates have undermined, have underpinned, excuse me, have underpinned rising asset values across economies. And she gives credit to a bunch of the different, uh, data agencies that were, were, uh, utilize in getting this chart together uh, and we'll throw this chart up to uh, to listeners and one of the reasons I wanted to bring it up other than it being kind of a cool chart was to look at there's a little there's a little bar chart a uh, secondary chart up in the top left there that's 2024 earnings growth so those are obviously forecasts you see uh, emerging markets is 19 percent you see the U.S. is 10 percent Developed markets, that's what DM stands for. Developed markets being 8%, Europe 5, Japan 5% as well. What's interesting to me is that the US makes up 42.5% of the global equity market, but is uh, but has 10% of the earnings growth. And then when you look at, okay, well, where is, where is most of the earnings growth coming from? Okay, well, it's 19% emerging markets, but emerging markets if we're going to count china as emerging markets and then other emerging markets that's only making up let's call it 20 
So 20% gets 19% of the earnings growth, while 42.5% gets 10% of the earnings growth. So when people ask us or, or, or wonder, you know, why are the US markets such a leading force? Aside from the treasury market that we have and the flight to safety that can exist within our, our federal government, um, and our federal bonds. Aside from that, which is obviously the flight safety play and us being kind of like the leader in the financial market space, it's this is a big piece of it. Is that we have a big bulk of the of the of the equity markets that are growing at really high rates, mm -hmm. especially when you compare it compare it to the, the eurozone, for example. You know, Europe's eleven percent of the global equity markets and only grow, uh, growth rate at five percent. So there's just more opportunity. Um, in, in the U.S. equity markets um, in summary. Yeah, and I think, you know, this is really good because, you know, it's supposed most of the growth is supposed to be in emerging markets, but emerging markets have done nothing, absolutely yep. nothing. And I've been hearing this for, for years. I mean, really, since I've been in the industry, Nick, everyone's like emerging markets are a really good value play right now, and they have just done nothing. So... Again, this is a good a good thing or a good chart that explains, hey, just because even if you knew emerging markets were going to be the top growth leader in advance, six, 12 months in advance, most people would say, oh, I want to buy emerging markets. And it's yeah. been this way for a long period of time and you would have gotten burned on it. So that's why I think it's so valuable to look at the price action of certain areas of the market because – some people might be saying emerging markets are a screaming buy right now, but they're not really doing that with their their allocations because emerging markets would be a lot higher if there was a lot mm. of people buying it, right? Absolutely. And the other the other trap you can you can fall into, and I saw that happen with uh, with energy specialist investors, so guys who are really focused on energy and made it you know twenty five percent of their portfolio. Where you know if you're you're a deep value guy. You can get in and you get you got a great price, but then you have to wait around ten years to to realize the gains. And then at that time, you know, you're you're lo you're overweight and long on an underperforming asset class for 10, 20 years, uh, there's there's a pretty massive opportunity cost of what you've missed out on over that time period. So that's another, you know, big danger of you know the deep value. Oh, like you said, emerging markets have, has more growth, but you know, if you look over the past 20 years and you're buying in emerging markets, unless you're hitting of course, unless you're hitting home runs, and of course, there are always going to be pockets in every country and every diamonds sector, in and there are going to be diamonds in the rough. And if you find a diamonds in the rough, uh, hats off to you. Um, but generally speaking, yeah, you, you, you'd have been burned if you were overweight in long emerging markets over the past two decades. Yeah, what I'm what I'm waiting for is for, uh, you know, uh, professionals and experts to start saying up. Oh, uh, emerging markets is no longer attractive. Then I'll I'll get excited. My ears will perk up and be like, "All right, does it make it look like it makes sense to to get some exposure to emerging markets?" And you know, right now it 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 just doesn't. So yeah, um, yeah. yeah, nice chart. Anyway, yeah, it's it's a cool chart. I I thought listeners would like that. The uh, the last piece I have is a, a quick look at U.S. small caps. This comes from Fidelity's Jury and Timmer. I like I like uh, Mr. Timmer's uh, research. He has some great charts that uh, appear um, very proprietary. It seems like he builds everything himself because they're they're quite aggressive. Um, 
So this chart is uh, it's about the market cycle. He says the following, if stocks entered a new bull market last October, you'd never know it by looking at the small caps. In fact, this would be the weakest small cap start ever for a new bull, which is not good considering small caps normally outperform on the way up. And it shows the market cycle here, um, the current market cycle. Um, and then it shows history kind of graphed behind it and, and tries to kind of pinpoint the bottom of a bear and a bull market over time. And you can see, and obviously all these gray lines that you're looking at on this chart are US small caps um, in history. And so you can see where we are in 2023, uh, and that would be the current small caps. Obviously that line ends quicker because that's present day and you can see the, the um, the x-axis going out to 2026, which we're obviously not there yet. Um, and it was interesting. Uh, this is something that, you know, obviously I was aware that small caps weren't doing as strong as expected maybe in, in, in um, you know, quote unquote bull market, but uh, an interesting point that he laid out, especially when you look at the mean there. Um, but markets are different uh, every, every, uh, every time. So I don't know if you have any thoughts on this. Yeah, and I think people are probably familiar with this, with this. This has been my one hesitation about the current environment and the strength and the legs of this market is small caps are just god-awful right now. And, yep. you know, typically we want to see small caps and micro caps, for that matter, leading the charge in either direction, up or down, um, because it gives us an idea of what we could expect the majority of the market to do and small caps are considered uh, more risk on areas of the market and when a risk on area of the market like small caps is not doing what the rest of the market is doing that's concerning to me and I, I've had that concern this whole year I've been waiting for small caps to kick it into gear um, yeah. so you know out of all the things I still am pretty optimistic on markets but this has been the one thing that I'm like when is one of these small caps going to kick it into gear, man. Yeah. Um, and maybe, maybe they will, maybe, you know, October, November rolls around and, you know, they're up 20% in two months. That's still a very possible, uh, possible outcome, but this is, this is concerning to me that, that small caps have, have lagged this bad. Yeah. It, it, it also could be a, you know, a um, bit of a wait and see where like we, what we were talking about with where we are at the peak of the cycle and the fed and inflation kind of came down and then it, it it crept up the past two reports not much but it did creep up a little bit the past two reports and uh, has the market a little antsy i think maybe maybe the market's waiting for you know hardcore resolution on that like definitely we've met our inflation goal the fed's definitely going to be moving lower from here and then we'll see small caps take off maybe that's it um but like you said, we'll uh, we'll see. It, it could happen next month. Uh, it could happen next year. Yeah, for sure. Um, all right, moving on to our financial planning topic of the week, Nick. Um, this was actually a blog post from Nick Majuli uh, titled "How to Save for a House: uh, The Comprehensive Guide to Home Ownership." And you know, I think. Obviously, we've talked about this here before, but there's so many things that go into 
owning a home that a lot of people don't think about. They just think of what the mortgage payment is going to be or what, what they're going to have to put down and, and they think they can afford it. But there's actually a whole lot more that goes into it. And Nick does a really good job uh, breaking this down. So uh, this link to the article will be in our show notes. So uh, if listeners want to read this or want their kids to read this, um, it is a really good read. So I just want to go over some of the highlights I thought from Nick. Um, so he starts off with what costs should you save for? Obviously, number one is the down payment, which can range between three and a half to 20 percent, uh, depending on if you want to pay mortgage insurance or not. And just simply mortgage insurance covers lenders in the event that about a borrower defaults uh, on a loan. But if you put down more than 20 percent, you do not have to pay PMI. So that's one less expense. Um, of course, people can put down more than 20%, but most buyers typically do not. And just for example, for people to wrap their heads around this, if you wanted to purchase a home priced at $500,000, you would need to put down anywhere between 17,500, which is 3.5% of the home's value, to 100,000, which is 20% of the home's value to buy it. Uh, next, you have closing costs to worry about. So they typically range between 2% and 5% of the home's sale price for the buyer. Uh, and then again, for example, a $500,000 home, you could expect to pay anywhere between $10,000 and $25,000 in closing costs. Um, and these closing costs uh, could include loan originator origination fees, appraisal fees, title insurance, inspection fees, credit report fees. So these all these little, it's like death by a thousand cuts, right? There's like, you know, you feel like you're just going to buy a home and it's like, oh my God, what what am I paying all this stuff for? And closing costs are something that are can be negotiated between the buyer and seller. And, you know, if you decide on a price that, you know, the seller came down on, then the buyer's expected to pick up the the closing costs and vice versa. But that's a pretty good chunk of change for closing costs, Nick. You know, ten grand to twenty-five grand just on a five hundred thousand dollar home. So, um, and, and a lot of it will, there. a lot of it will depend on the market too. If it's if it's more of a seller's market, the buyer's gonna have to pay more for closing costs. Yeah. Correct. So it, all in all, Nick's recommendation is to set aside, you know, eight and a half to 25 percent of a home sale price for the initial costs. And that's just for the initial cost. Right. Then you have the mortgage payment. Um, and I think this one is really interesting to go over, Nick, because, you know, when I bought my first home, I was looking at like the amortization schedule and I was like, I'm not paying any principal value like I'm paying just all interest. I was like, what is going on here? Um, and Nick says, due to the nature of how mortgage payoff schedules are created, at the beginning of your mortgage, you will mostly be paying interest on the money that you borrowed and very little toward the principal balance of your loan. However, as you pay down the loan over time, this changes and you begin to pay down more principal and build more equity in your home. Um, so, you know, when I was a, a first time home buyer, this got me. I was like, what? This I was like, this doesn't make sense. I actually called the mortgage company. I was like, are you guys, are you guys sure this is right? I know I'm, I'm new to this, but I'm, I'm in finance and you know, whatever. But, uh, so you just have to be aware of that, that you're going to be paying a lot of, a, a lot of interest in the beginning. Um, next he talks about maintenance and repair costs. There's a couple different ways to go about that. Nick, you could use the 1% rule and assume that you have to save 1% every single year of the home's value for home repairs, especially if it's an older house. 
So again, if we're talking about a half a million dollar house, you want to set aside $5,000 a year for repairs. Um, there's a square foot rule, so a dollar per square foot. Um, so assume you'll pay a dollar for every square foot of your home. So if your home's 2,000 square feet, then you should set aside $2,000 to cover these costs. Um, you could use the national average in 2023 for the first quarter single family homes, according to the New York Times. Um, the average home repair cost was almost $6,500, which seems a little high to me, but maybe not. Um, but regardless of what you decide to do, it is necessary to save for this stuff, probably on a monthly basis. Um, because the last thing you want to do is have your fridge go out or have your water heater go out and have it not being covered by the home warranty and you have to go out and spend a couple thousand dollars that you didn't anticipate on spending. And if you don't have that money saved, where are you going to take it from? You're going to build up credit card debt or you're going to take out a loan or you're going to decrease the amount you're contributing to your uh, workplace retirement plan. So those are all things we, we don't want to happen. Mm -hmm. Um. Obviously, kind of just wrapping up, Nick, uh, utilities, gas, electric, water, trash, recycling, and internet, depending on where you live, some of those might be bundled together. Uh, some of them may not be. You might not be responsible for water in some, some locations. Sometimes you are. Um, and then last but not least, homeowner association fees. So homeowner associations are kind of nice because they do a lot for you. So they usually do the landscaping, cut the lawn, make things look pretty. Um, but they could be pretty pricey. And for example, uh, in New York City, or excuse me, uh, in the US, uh, average HOA fees are about $170 a month across the US. But in New York City, the average fee is closer to $1,600 a month, which is a, a big jump up, right? Mm. So um, you got to do yeah. due diligence on if your development you're moving into has an HOA and, and what that cost is going to be, because that's going to make things more expensive. So there's just a lot that goes into home ownership. And, you know, especially with the environment that we're in today, it's really hard for new homeowners um, to swallow paying this amount of money for houses just because interest rates are so high. Um, mm -hmm. So Nick has a couple more things that he talks through. So really encourage people to check that out on our show notes. Um, really good stuff uh, from Nick there. Extremely, extremely accurate. In my personal experience uh, uh, doing doing that twice, you know, buying and selling a home. Uh, yeah, he's spot on. The, the yeah, costs add up. The costs really add up. And it's things, like you said, with your first home buying experience, mine is the same way where where I get those closing papers and I'm like, man, that was just a little more than I was expecting. Um, yeah, you just, you feel, and that's human nature, right? When you, when you make is, a big yeah. purchase, you feel ripped off. You're like, man, I yeah. feel like I just got taken advantage of, but yeah. um, it's just, it's kind of how it works. So uh, yeah. yeah, interesting times for, for the housing market right now. Absolutely. Uh, before we sign off, Nick, I just want to let uh, everybody know if we or someone else uh, you have uh, listened to has inspired you to create your own podcast, um, you are able to get your first month of Blueberry podcasting hosting free with the promo code Jessup Wealth, all lowercase. Uh, you can use the hosting estimator on their site to determine the best plan for you. And again, don't forget that's Jessup Wealth, all lowercase, for your first month free. Before we sign off, Nick, anything else you want to talk about? 
No, I think uh, I think we hit a lot of good uh, good points today. So thanks for having me as always. And uh, I, I don't know when I'll be back, but I'll be back at some point. <laughs> yeah, you will. Thanks for joining us, Nick. Uh, last thing I'll say is heading into the end of the quarter. Um, obviously this week, so tomorrow, September 29th, is the last trading day of the quarter. Um, then we got Q4 starting October, November, December. Uh, again, typically those tend to be uh, pretty strong months for the market um, and not too many weeks away. Nick, we're going to have earnings season for companies reporting their Q3 results. Um, so it's going to get pretty busy here in terms of data if the government doesn't shut down, which it's looking like it's going to. But um, again, uh, right now what's going on in the markets we feel is very normal. Uh, don't think it warrants any major changes to uh, especially our client portfolios, uh, but portfolios in general. You don't want to make emotional based decisions when it comes to the markets. Um, but other than that, Nick, we will be back for episode 221 next week. Hope you all have a wonderful weekend. Happy Ryder Cup weekend. It is the Ryder Cup this week, so that's will I will be spending most of my time this weekend. Uh, probably be getting up pretty early since it's in Rome this year. So uh, I think matches start at 1 a.m. Uh, tomorrow on Friday. So I don't think I'm going to be that crazy and get up for that, but I might might get up a little earlier. And if my daughter Mia decides to wake up in the middle of the night, I won't be as angry as I usually would be. Yeah, put on golf, you know? That just sounds like a great mid-morning nap to me. Oh, yeah, 100%. Anna. Good father-daughter bonding. Absolutely. Absolutely. All right, everybody. Have a good rest of the week. Thank you for listening to the Independent Advisors podcast. If you're interested in hearing more, hit the subscribe button so you can be notified every time a new episode gets released. Feel free to share with friends, family, and follow us on Twitter at Jessup Wealth, Facebook, and LinkedIn. Mark and Matt will continue to share beneficial information on these social media sites. Also, check out the podcast tab on their website. That's www.jessupwealthmanagement.com. There you'll find links to every episode of the Independent Advisors. Have questions or topics you want to discuss on the show? Message us on Twitter, LinkedIn, or send an email with the words questions and topics in the subject line to inquiries at jessupwealthmanagement.com. We'll talk about it right here on the podcast. Certain sections of this commentary may contain forward-looking statements based on reasonable expectations, estimates, projections, and assumptions. Forward-looking statements are not guarantees of future performance and involve certain risks and uncertainties, which are difficult to predict. All indices are unmanaged and are not available for direct investment by the public. Past performance is not indicative of future results. This podcast is provided for general informational purposes only and does not constitute either tax, legal, or financial advice. Although we do go to great lengths to make sure our information is accurate and useful, we recommend you consult a tax preparer, professional tax advisor, financial advisor, or lawyer regarding your specific circumstances. Investing involves risk, including the loss of principal. No strategy can guarantee any objective or goal will be achieved.